Well, as we know by now, if you've been attentive to our preaching through the first epistle of Peter, Peter often addresses the theme of Christian suffering. Some of the lessons that we have already seen in this epistle are that suffering is God's will for his children. It is not an aberration. It is not an indication of his displeasure. Furthermore, God uses suffering to test our faith, to refine it, to strengthen it. In fact, suffering, as we learned recently, is linked with the believer's relationship to Jesus Christ, our vital union with him. For, as Peter tells us, since Christ also suffered in the flesh, so must we. Suffering is an integral part of what it means to be a Christian. Today in our text, in 1 Peter 4, verses 14 through 16, we will find Peter focusing on one particular aspect of suffering, namely persecution for the cause of Christ. Some of the suffering that Peter has dealt with has included more suffering than simply persecution, but persecution is very much on his mind, as so many of these first century Christians were persecuted for the cause of Christ. And although all suffering certainly does not fit into the category of persecution, all suffering does have meaning and purpose in the design of God, but persecution is an important category of suffering. And we'd better be prepared for persecution, or we shall falter when it comes. In the text before us today, we want to see, number one, the benefits of persecution, verse 14. Secondly, clarifications regarding persecution in verse 15. And thirdly, responses to persecution, verse 16. We begin by noticing benefits of persecution. 1 Peter 4.14 If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. We learn immediately something of the nature of the persecution that Peter has in mind. He talks about those who are reproached for the name of Christ. That pinpoints the nature of the abuse that he's dealing with. Those who are reproached, it's a word that means to denounce, to insult, revile, abuse, slander, defame. This is exactly what happened to Christ upon the cross. We read about it in Mark's account in Mark 15 verse 29. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Even those who were crucified with him Reviled him. The very word that Peter uses here, translated reproach in my translation. Taunting insults, verbal abuse. Christ certainly endured a great deal of that and far more, but he endured a great deal of that. And Peter says that's going to happen to the followers of Christ. 
if you are reproached, if you are reviled for the name of Christ. The Greek tense is one of continuous action. It has the idea of what happens over a period of time. Not necessarily just one instance of this, but what he's saying is if your Christian testimony, if your Christian identity is such that you find yourself regularly receiving insults from others who don't know the Lord, insults from the world, then you can be sure of the blessing that Peter names in this passage. And he tells us that it is the name of Christ that is the cause of all this animosity. The name of Christ. That means who Christ is and what he stands for. It is not the name, Jesus Christ, that necessarily offends, but it's what that name stands for, the person that it represents, the teaching that it represents. In fact, as we know, the world may even adopt for itself the name of Christ if it can change the true meaning of that name and attach something else to it. It will gladly borrow the name of Christ and use it to its advantage. But when it comes to what God has revealed about the nature of Christ, the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the teaching of Christ, the things that he said, and the things that he said through his apostles as recorded in the Bible, when you deal with this body of truth that reveals who God is and what he requires... That's where you run into a great deal of opposition and animosity. And if you bear the name of Christ, if you are joined to Him in saving faith, if you are identified with Him, who He is and what He stands for, then you can expect persecution is going to come your way. We've certainly seen many examples down through the years of Christianity that takes an aberrant form and continues to claim the name Christian, but divests itself of the unwelcome aspects of who Christ is and what his word teaches. In more recent history, we have a name of liberalism or modernism, liberal Christianity that has certainly done that, held on to the name Christian, insisted that we are Christian, but has completely gutted the meaning of that word so that they do not believe in the Christ who is represented in the Bible, but they have actually changed that Christ into one who is more to their liking. And they have carefully deleted from the Bible those aspects of Christ's teaching that are offensive to them, holding on only to those things that they approve of. And thus, continuing to bear the name of Christ, they nevertheless are rejecting who He is and what He stands for. But if you bear the name of Christ honestly and truly and represent Him for who He is, as given to us in the Bible, and stand for the truth that He has delivered to us, then you can expect persecution from those who hate Christ. And make no mistake about it, those who will not bow the knee to Christ do indeed hate Christ in their hearts. We saw an example of that very recently, didn't we, in the Miss USA contest this week. 
I really wouldn't have been aware of it if someone initially had not brought it to my attention. But then it wasn't long before I was seeing references to it in various news reports. But apparently, Miss California was expected to be the first, the winner in the Miss USA contest. But she claims to be a Christian, and I assume probably is, though I have a hard time understanding how a true Christian would be willing to parade herself in such fashion before millions of people. But nevertheless, she claims to be a Christian, and so one of the judges, an openly gay man, a viciously gay man, devised a question purposely for for the purpose of exposing her opposition to gay marriage. And he asked her what she thought of that. Now, others didn't receive questions of that nature, but she did. And this is what was her answer. Her name is Carrie. And she said, and I quote, We live in a land where you can choose same-sex marriage or opposite. You know, this isn't really a, a strong, in-your-face kind of answer. It's a very mild one, actually. But we live in a land where you can choose same-sex marriage or opposite. And you know what? I think in my country, in my family, I think that I believe that a marriage should be between a man and a woman. No offense to anybody out there, but that's how I was raised, end quote. Well, the gays went berserk. And that judge saw to it that that young lady would not win the contest. And that's how Miss North Carolina became Miss USA. And Miss California... Because of that mild assertion of truth from the Bible, that mild assertion of who Christ is and what he stands for, and make no mistake about it, the Bible is clear of what Christ says about that. And because of that mild assertion of what is true, but what is politically incorrect, so-called, and is hated by many in our day, she was persecuted. And all Christians were made to feel the sting of that persecution and to feel a little bit more rejected by the society in which we live. That's what Peter is talking about. That's the nature of the persecution that he has in mind. If you are reproached for the name of Christ. But notice that there's a blessing attached to this kind of persecution. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. Blessed are you. Twice in 1 Peter, this phrase is used. The first time is in chapter 3 and verse 14, where he says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And now in our text today, in chapter 4 and verse 14, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. And both of these times where Peter pronounces a blessing upon the people of God, it is in the context of suffering. There is special blessing in the time of suffering. That's what Peter is telling us. That, of course, is very contrary to normal human wisdom which would think that suffering and persecution in itself would demonstrate that there is no blessing, that blessing has been removed. But the Bible repeatedly tells us just the opposite. This statement of Peter is, as you know, even contrary to some popular Christian teaching in our day that would purport that if you are living a life of faith, that you shouldn't suffer 
It's not God's will for anybody to suffer. And if you are suffering, it must be because you don't understand the truth and you aren't claiming the truth and you don't have enough faith. You don't need to suffer. You just need to claim the blessings of God. But Peter says, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. The way to claim the blessing of God is to endure suffering for Christ's sake. No surprise. That's exactly what Christ said. You haven't forgotten the Sermon on the Mount, have you? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted For so they, rather, persecuted the prophets who were before you. Why should we be surprised? If you are persecuted for the name of Christ, you are blessed! Exclamation point! You are blessed! Now, you know, in verse 13, Peter indicated future blessing. But in verse 14, he indicates present blessing. Remember in verse, verse 12, he said, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, for when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. There's a great day of rejoicing coming when Christ returns and God's people will know themselves to be greatly blessed in that day. But we don't have to wait till then. Christ, uh, Peter says, if you are persecuted for the name of Christ, you are blessed now. Blessed are you. Because that very act of persecution is a recognition of your Spiritual prosperity. And therefore, you are blessed. Because the only way you could be spiritually prosperous, the only way that you could invite this kind of persecution, the only way that you could hold up over a period of time to this kind of persecution, is if as a true child of God, the Spirit of God is dwelling within you and is enabling you, is helping you to endure this kind of persecution. And so if you are being persecuted for Christ's sake, you are, of course, blessed to the greatest degree possible. What greater blessings could you have than to be a true child of God? Yes, you are certain of your eternal destiny, your your home in heaven, your inheritance with Christ, but you even now have the assurance of that with the indwelling Holy Spirit who has so worked in your heart that you are able and willing to bear up under this kind of persecution. And therefore, it's no surprise when Peter goes on to give us the exact reason for this blessing. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, he says, blessed are you for or because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. A rather unusual way of designating the Holy Spirit of God, but that's who he's talking about. And he calls God the Holy Spirit, the spirit of glory, no doubt a reference to the Old Testament Shekinah glory, which manifested 
the presence of God, right? Whenever you saw that Shekinah glory, you knew that God was especially near. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. You can't get away from Him if you try. The psalmist said that. Where shall I go from your presence? If I ascend into the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and fly to the uttermost part of the sea, behold, your right hand shall hold me. Your spirit is with me. I can't get away from you. I cannot hide from God. I cannot get away from the presence of God. God is with us always, 24-7. We should know that. We should remember that. We should live in the light of that. But there are special manifestations, special awarenesses, special times of blessing when the presence of God is so great, so real, so glorious, so encouraging to us. And the spirit of Glory seems to indicate that the Shekinah glory of God, which was an indication of God's special presence in the tabernacle or the temple or at various times in the Old Testament. When people saw it, they knew that God was very near and was was especially manifesting himself to them, had drawn very close to them. And so the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Settles down upon you. Now again, the world would say, and some erroneous Christian teachers would say, you can know that the Spirit of God is blessing you when you're healthy and wealthy and everything's going fine. And the Bible doesn't say anything like that. But the Bible says when you are being reviled and abused and mistreated, because of your Christian testimony, then God is especially blessing you. God has drawn especially close to you. The Spirit of God rests upon you. The Spirit of God, as we know, is already within all believers. And so for the spirit of glory and of God to rest upon us is, a, is an additional measure of the spirit's presence. An abiding and, and more satisfying manifestation of the spirit's presence within us. This seems to be a reference to the spirit of God mentioned in Isaiah, the Old Testament, chapter 11. It's talking about Christ. It says in verse 1, They shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Same type of language. In fact, in the Septuagint, identical language. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord and so forth. The Spirit... The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. A promise that when the Messiah comes, Jesus, that God's Spirit's going to rest upon him in unusual presence, unusual power. He's going to have a greater measure of the Spirit than, than the ordinary. But now Peter takes that same language, it probably borrows from that same promise, and applies it not to Christ, but to Christ's people. Again, reminding us of this close relationship between Christ and all who are joined to Him in vital union. 
And Peter says that same promise applies to Christ's people. And when you are being reviled for the name of Christ, then you can know that the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you in a greater than ordinary way, like the Spirit of God rested upon Jesus in a greater than ordinary way. Now, how's that? For a blessing. And so the Spirit of God resting upon us means that He's with us in greater manifestation, greater power, greater grace. And that comes in its greatest measure during times of persecution. That's why Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.12, For if we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. If we persevere in trials and difficulties and hardships and persecutions, if we endure, we shall reign with Him. Special blessing for those who bear up under this kind of persecution. And so what Peter is saying is there is an assurance of knowledge. That is, when we are reviled simply for being identified with Christ, That gives us greater assurance. It gives us the knowledge that we must belong to Him. We must belong to Him. If others recognize it, if the world sees Christ in me, He must be there. Sometimes we're not so sure ourselves. We have our wrestlings and worries and doubts. And sometimes to to a good purpose to examine our hearts before the Lord. But this is a wonderful assurance of knowledge. If the unbeliever, the antagonist, sees enough of Christ in me that he who hates Christ wants to revile me for the name of Christ, then I must truly belong to Christ. I must really have been born again. I must be approaching in some measure what it means to become like Christ and to represent Him truly in this world. And it's not only the assurance of knowledge, it's the assurance of experience because this Shekinah glory, this greater glory of the presence of God is with me in a way that I, that I detect that. I see that, not with physical eyes, but I'm aware of His presence. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 about when you are dragged before courts and He said, when they deliver you up, do not worry about what or uh, rather how or what you should speak. For it shall be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now that's just an example of the kind of thing that Peter's talking about. Here's someone who's being persecuted and dragged into court. He doesn't have the foggiest idea what he's going to say. He feels weak. He feels powerless. He feels helpless. But he knows he's God's child. And he's, he's looking to the Lord to help him. And lo and behold, when the time comes, he's able to speak with Wisdom and clarity and humility and power and with the evidence of God speaking through him that like he's never experienced it before in his life. And when it's all over, he says, that wasn't me. That was God. That was Christ. That was the Spirit of Christ within me. I know it. Well, how's that for assurance? We'd love to have assurance without any difficulty. (laughs) 
But the Bible tells us that that kind of assurance comes in the vortex of suffering. That's really, I think, what this last phrase in the text means. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. That phrase is found only in the Texas Receptus, so it's not in all the translations. But it's simply saying here's another manifestation, another evidence. It separates the sheep from the goats. It separates those who are Christ from those who are not Christ. Those who love him from those who hate him. And those who hate him make that known. They, they revile him. They speak evil of him. But those who know him don't do that. They glorify him. They speak well of him. If you're in this kind of persecution, this kind of context, when other people are reviling him and hating him, if you speak up, if you stand up, if you are willing to go against the flow and speak out on behalf of Christ, then that's evidence that you belong to Christ. How blessed are you indeed. And so we're talking about the benefits of persecution. And the the benefits are, number one, the special presence of God within you. Number two, assurance of genuine salvation. If you're willing to suffer rather than compromise, that indicates the inward transforming work of the Holy Spirit. And number three, it exposes spurious professions, doesn't it? Because when those who claim to be Christians are unwilling to bear shame for his name, then that exposes them for the imposter they are. And sometimes people don't even know their own hearts until they come to a time like this. And remember, Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father which is in heaven. But if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father which is in heaven. And he wasn't talking about just making a little confession before you're baptized, although that's important. But he was talking about in the context of opposition, persecution, and reviling. If in that kind of climate you are willing to be identified with Christ and not deny his name, then you can be sure that he confesses you before his Father in heaven, which means that you are safe, you are saved, you are secure. But if you deny him, and again, continuous action, if this is your habit, if this is your pattern, Not necessarily one stumble and fall, but if your pattern is to duck your head and hide when other people are reviling the name of Christ and you find yourself continually unwilling to stand up and bear reproach for his name, what does that tell you about the true condition of your heart? Regardless of what you profess, you must not truly know him. You must not truly have been born again. Better to understand that now that on the day of judgment, to profess that you know him and hear him say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. It's really a blessing to find that out now so that you can deal with it now and come to a gracious God now who promises salvation for all who come to him in repentance and faith. But now we move quickly to the clarifications regarding persecution in verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. The kind of blessing that he's talking about in verse 14 is not bestowed upon suffering of every kind. Some suffering is self-inflicted. 
Some of it we bring upon ourselves. And Peter lists four items to illustrate what he's talking about here. They're examples. Four items. And there's really two different categories of items. There's three in the first category and one in the second. And first he's talking about criminal activities. And secondly, he talks about socially destructive activities. The criminal activities, first of all, let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer. These are criminal activities against the laws of society, punishable by law. Murder, of course, we understand to be in that category. Theft is certainly in that category. Evildoer is a general term that really speaks of everything else. You can't, you can't name everything that's against the law. Murder, thief, we all understand that to be things that are against the law. But generally, anything that's against the law that society considers to be wrong, illegal, that's what it means to be an evildoer. And Christians are taught in the Scriptures to obey the laws of society, except when those laws directly contradict the laws of God. If the law of society says to murder, and you know God says not to murder, then of course you don't do it. Like the Hebrew midwives who refused to put the male children to death. They defied the law of their land and were blessed by God in so doing. Because a law that is directly contrary to a law of God is an illegal law. And God's people always follow the laws of God as their highest authority. Or when society commands you not to teach or preach in the name of Christ, you can't submit to that law. You must obey God rather than men. But all other laws, and most of them are not contrary to the laws of God, all other laws of society, Christians are supposed to obey. We should be the best law-abiding citizens that society knows. Pretty evident that political liberals don't seem to have this concept of being obedient to the laws of the land. Their concept is, I obey the laws that I agree with and I defy the ones I don't. Well, separate yourself from that crowd by obediently to God submitting to the laws of the land, whether you personally agree with them or not. Because if they don't contradict the laws of God, you're under orders to obey them. Submit to them as unto the Lord. You don't have to agree with them. You just have to agree with God. God says submit to them. You didn't miss that in the Bible, did you? Some of you are looking at me like, where'd you come from? I came from... The closet of prayer. I came from the Word of God. I came from the Bible. Surely I don't have to stop and show you some of those texts. Christians are to obey the laws of society unless they contradict directly the laws of God. You say, well, what if the laws of society are what I consider to be illegal laws? Obey them. Unless they contradict a clear law of God, in which case you can't obey them. I've known people who claim to be Christians, maybe were, maybe weren't, God knows their heart, who were jailed for embezzlement or extortion or tax evasion. That seems to be a particularly difficult one for some of God's people. I don't think the taxes are legal. Pay them. God tells you to. I don't like to pay them either. But listen, don't. Bring the law down on yourself for being a tax evader. Pay the taxes. 
Trust God to supply. The God who tells you to pay them tells you that He will supply all your need. He will supply whatever Caesar demands. And as a good citizen, you pay your taxes, no matter what you think about them. Don't go to jail for tax evasion. I knew a pastor one time who went to jail because it was discovered that he had stolen postal money orders in the attic of the church. Now, he says somebody else put them there, and he didn't know they were there. I don't know. But you don't want to mess with the feds. Now, wasn't that a dumb thing to go to jail for? Oh, they're persecuting me because I'm a preacher. No, they're persecuting you because you are outside the law. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer because you break the laws of society. You should expect to be punished for such activity. Don't play the martyr. Don't say, they're persecuting me for Christ's sake. No, they're persecuting you for sinful criminal activity, illegal activity. Don't even let them know you're a Christian if you do that. Don't don't besmirch the name of Christ that way. Keep your mouth shut. Pay your debt to society. And not only criminal activities, but even socially destructive activities. Busybody. That's the second category. Socially destructive activities. If anyone suffers, as a, or verse 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Troublesome meddler, that's translated in some versions. It's a compound Greek word. The first part of the word means that which belongs to another. The second part of the word is overseer. It's the, it's the word for bishop, episcopus, bishop, overseer. And the idea is somebody who oversees that which belongs to another, that is, someone who decides they're going to control or try to control things which are none of their business. They belong to someone else's responsibility. But you're sticking your nose into somebody else's business. One who intrudes into matters that do not concern you. You may get reviled for that. And if you do, you brought it on yourself. Too much gossip among the people of God. And a lot of that gossip betrays this busybody spirit. As you are making your pronouncement upon the way other people dress, none of your business, unless we're talking about obvious and blatant immodesty, in which case you have a Christian duty to to uh, address that in some way and to help them. But none of your business how other people dress. None of your business what kind of car other people drive. None of your business what kind of house other people live in, other Christians. None, none of your business what kind of vacations they take. None of your business what kind of food they eat. None of your business what kind of recreations they involve themselves in as long as they're not sinful. That is none of your business. But out. Nose out. Stop being a busybody. I've got all your attention now. It's amazing. I, 
I've never seen such rapt attention. What in the world is he going to say next? I'm saying if you suffer for that reason, you ought to. Maybe that will teach you to behave in a more Christian-like way. The Bible has a lot to say about not being busybodies. In 1 Thessalonians 4.11, that you aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. 2 Thessalonians 3.11, For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Butt out. Take care of your own affairs. Oversee your own business. the, The business that God has given you. Isn't it amazing how many times busybodies who are experts in other people's affairs seem to be very negligent and ones that have been rightfully and biblically given to them, they are so busy taking care of things that are not their business that they are neglecting the things that are, in many cases. And what Peter's saying is that when you are inclined to play the martyr, you probably are not Suffering for Christ's sake. Oh, pity me. I'm a martyr. I'm suffering for Christ's sake. No, you're suffering for your own sorriness. Learn from that and stop it. But when you're suffering for Christ's sake, and here are responses, proper responses to persecution, verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. If you suffer as a Christian, that is a follower of Christ, a genuine follower of Christ. Christian, it's a compound word. It's The Bible talks, for example, about those who were Herodians. Who were they? They were followers of Herod. They were of the political party of Herod. They were identified with Herod. And this term Christian was applied to followers of Christ in the same way. It's only used three times in the Bible, and every time it's really used of what other people said about followers of Christ. Uh, In Acts 11.26, we read, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. That is, called by the citizens of Antioch. And the second time is in Acts 26, 28. This is is Festus, Agrippa. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. Or that probably should be understood as a question. Are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian? One of those Christian people? You see, the, the term as it was used by others wasn't really a term of honor in that day. And the way Peter uses it, I think, makes it clear. If you suffer as a Christian, that is, because other people identify you with Christ, they they consider you to belong to Christ and to be one of those Christ followers. If, If other people look at you that way and you're suffering for that reason, then you are indeed blessed. In fact, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. 
There's something not to do and there's something to do. Number one, don't be ashamed. As you should be if you suffer for any of the things in verse 15, you ought to be ashamed. But if you suffer for Christ, what he stands for, who he is, then don't be ashamed. Don't feel dishonored. Others may try to shame you and make you feel dishonored, but you resist that. You know that you have already received the highest honor possible. God has honored you by making you one of his children. Don't feel ashamed. Don't give in to shame or cowardice. Hold your head up high. And what are you to do? Glorify God in this matter, or maybe more correctly, in this name. Glorify God in this name. Praise God that you know Christ. Praise God that you bear Christ's name. Praise God for the privilege of suffering for Christ. There's so much blessing attached to that. Praise God for it. Don't feel ashamed, but rather rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Is what Jesus said. And Peter's saying the same thing. Well, let me close by reminding you that in America today, things are getting tougher for Christians. Persecution, verbal abuse is getting stronger and bolder and more vocal and more intense and more fierce. How will you respond to that? Will you hide your identity as a Christian whenever you're among people who don't honor the name of Christ? Will you compromise who Christ is and what he stands for and try to make your brand of Christianity acceptable to those who are hostile to Christ and what he stands for? Reshape Christ, reshape his teaching to make it more compatible with the Bible? How disappointed many of us were that a well-known evangelical pastor from California who influences many people, and was invited to give a prayer at the inauguration, the recent inauguration of the president, has now capitulated and compromised on the issue of homosexual marriage. He's backed up from what he said before. He's apologized for what he said before. Didn't take long for the accolades of the world to be more important to him than being faithful to Christ, did it? Are you going to do that? I hope not. Or will you bear Christ and his reproach openly and gladly? Because your response to this kind of persecution, as we've seen, says more about your heart condition than you realize And so in the face of persecution, and some of you may be getting it from your family, from your friends, from your co-workers, from your, your neighborhood, from those in your circle, and they're really trying to beat you down and make you ashamed of being a Christian and get you to shut up about Christ and about the gospel. And what are you going to do? Well, first, I think you ought to give thanks for this text that's helped to strengthen you, this text and others like it. And secondly, I think you need to give some thought to the ultimate consequences If you deny Christ now, what's going to happen later? I'm talking about 50 years from now, 100 years from now. If you bear the shame of Christ now, what is you going to have later? It ought to cause us to repent for past failures because we've all failed, haven't we? And to seek divine aid for the present. Lord, help me. Help me never to be ashamed of Christ and the truth of the Bible. 
Help me never to back down. Help me not to be carnal, brash, ugly, unkind, rude, but help me never to compromise, never to be ashamed of Christ and of His Word. I think what's happening in America today is purifying the church. A lot of people call themselves Christians. Now, let's find out who really is. God has a way of doing that. Sorting out professing Christians from false Christians. Sorting out professing churches and denominations from those who are serious followers of Christ. Persecution tends to separate the true from the false. Persecution exposes the weak and forces new alignments Persecution deals with those who are cultural Christians. We've had a lot of that in America where it's been respectable to call yourself a Christian. Well, that's changing. Are you still going to call yourself a Christian when it's no longer respectable? When society doesn't expect everybody to belong to the church and be baptized and and, uh, say you're, you're a Christian? When that's no longer true? When, when there's a cost to bear? When there's a liability for being a Christian? Are you still going to want to be identified as a Christian? Or are you going to run and hide? That's going to say an awful lot about your Christianity, isn't it? It's going to reveal the genuineness or the falsity of it. And in the final analysis, we'll have a whole lot fewer Christians, people who call themselves Christians, but maybe we'll have a much higher percentage of genuine ones among those who call themselves Christians. And that can only be good. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Shall we pray? O Lord, grant us, who name the name of Christ, much grace and much courage in these ever-darkening days as the clouds are gathering over our heads. And Lord, that which looks to us like terrible tragedy may very well be in your wise design exactly what is needed. Lord, we don't know what is needed. We confess that we don't, and we yield that to you. What we ask for is your aid, your help, that we be faithful and strong and true in whatever climate you put us in, whatever society we are called upon to bear testimony in. Whatever adversity is thrown our way, Lord, help us to be humble and sweet and kind and gracious and strong and courageous to bear the name of Christ gladly. We ask it, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.